Welcome to the Climate Hour. I'm Bob Grove, your host. Tonight, we're going to discuss sustainable food, the environmental impact of what we eat, how we as individuals can make food choices that both improve our health and longevity, and also help us save the planet. We're joined tonight by Stan Slaughter from Missouri Organic Recycling, Meredith McAllister from Compost Collective KC, Mark Agaron from Cultivate KC, David Haken from Kansas City Drawdown Society, and Hilary Noonan from Mad Hatter Compost Tea. Thank you for joining us, everyone. Our climate crisis is actually a series of cause and effects. Greenhouse gases in our atmosphere are absorbing heat from the sun and causing an increase in the average of the Earth's surface temperature. This global warming causes long-term changes to the planet's weather patterns. And this climate change causes weather disasters, hurricanes, floods, droughts, wildfires. The weather disasters are costing us billions of dollars in lives and property damage. And the way we fight them is by stopping their root cause. And that's reducing the amount of greenhouse gases in our atmosphere. Our food choices play a big role in greenhouse gas emissions and also in carbon sequestration. The EPA reports that food accounts for 24% of global greenhouse gas emissions. That's quite a bit. That's only 1% less than all the power plants, electricity, and heat production in the world. And animal agriculture specifically accounts for 14% of global greenhouse gas emissions. That's equal to the entire transportation sector. Think about that. Animal agriculture produces as much greenhouse gas emissions as all cars, trucks, trains, planes, and ships worldwide. So our food choices have a huge impact on the environment. An Oxford study did um, an analysis of 40,000 farms worldwide and found that food crops, vegetable foods, grains, et cetera, produce three to five kilograms of greenhouse gases per 100 grams of food. Now, if we look at fish, pork, and poultry, they produce around five to 15 kilograms of greenhouse gases per 100 grams of food. And at the top end of the scale, we see beef, which produces around 100 five kilograms of greenhouse gases per 100 grams of food. In general, the best carbon footprint of beef production is higher than the worst carbon footprint of pork and poultry. And the best carbon footprint of pork and poultry is still much higher than the worst carbon footprint of food crops. Worldwide, moving to a healthy doctor-recommended diet, and that's a diet where we have smaller servings of meat and more fruits and vegetables that would reduce global greenhouse gas emissions by three and a half billion tons over the next 30 years. And if we were able to move closer to a vegetarian diet, that could reduce global greenhouse gas emissions by seven and a half billion tons. In terms of land use, livestock uses 83% of all farmland to produce just 18% of global food calories. On the other hand, food crops, they just use 17% of all farmland to produce 82% of the world's calories. And agriculture is 92% of the world's water consumption. It takes 26 gallons of water to produce one pound of tomatoes. It takes 1,857 gallons of water to produce one pound of beef. And it takes over 1,000 gallons of water to produce just one gallon of milk. Our food choices also affect our health and longevity. A study published by the National Academy of Sciences found that moving to that healthy doctor-recommended diet would save five and a half million lives over the next 30 years. And moving to a vegetarian diet could save seven and a half million lives. Economically, moving to that vegetarian diet could save us half a trillion dollars in environmental cleanup, nearly $1 trillion in healthcare costs, and $28 trillion in value of life benefits. 
overall, it feels like our personal food choices can be a real game changer. So David, I'd like to start with you. I know that the Drawdown Project ranks food and it's what, the top five Drawdown solutions? Yes, and it was a surprise even to the researchers just how much impact that had. And um, so there are sustainable food uh, initiatives uh, cropping up all over the world uh, through these drawdown communities that are doing things like the Kansas City Drawdown Society started having plant-based potlucks every time we gathered. And uh, I think that the social aspect of what needs to change is really important that there's so much culture built up uh, around the standard American diet and developed countries uh, diet that is really heavy on meat that asking someone to change their diet uh, is probably uh, a bigger ask than getting them to put insulation in their attic or uh, you know other things that reduce their carbon footprint but what I love about plant-based diet as a solution for people that want to reduce their carbon footprint is they actually save money when they do it and they their health is better. Now when we talk about a plant-based diet and you know that's maybe the gold standard um, really in terms of greenhouse gas emissions moving to the Mediterranean diet or you know what they call that healthy global diet which is just reducing the amount of meat you have can have almost the same impact um, you know, not perhaps not as great of an impact on your health. I know the the solid plant based diet is is very impactful in terms of you know cancers and heart disease and diabetes, those things. But when we're talking about climate change, um, moving to a Mediterranean diet, which is you know more more fish related, small four ounce servings of mostly white meats, eliminating a lot of the red meats those have very nearly the same greenhouse gas reductions as moving to a hard vegan diet. Do any of you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think you need to look at the systems as a whole. Um, so while cutting down on meat or rather increasing fruits and vegetables, there's no doubt. Um, but when those fruits and vegetables are doused in Roundup, there's a really big health um, problem with that. So a lot of those numbers change when you talk about regenerative agriculture. And regenerative agriculture, whether you choose to eat the animals or not, um, actually has a negative carbon footprint. Um, so the, the same company, Qantas, that um, I think they used the ROTS number on CAFO beef, so beef that's traditional, what you go into the grocery store and buy is 33 kilograms per kilogram of, of meat. Uh, Beyond Burger is four. So that's huge. Regenerative beef is negative three and a half. So it's a really big difference and it's an important difference because getting that carbon back into the soil is absolutely essential. When you do that, it, you can cut down so much on so many of the chemicals that are going in, and that's not even counted into the carbon numbers. Um, and while you're doing that, you're also affecting climate change because you're cycling, you're storing some of that carbon, you're cycling the rest of it, 
and that's the natural process that's that's been on earth and kept it um at a temperature the humans can live at um when we talk about regenerative and you know i think regenerative is a really important subject um you know those of us that are consumers how do we eat regenerative I mean, that, that's almost a subject that we have to address the farmers and encourage farmers to move into those regenerative techniques that are going to sequester carbon. And, you know, that, that's a huge topic within itself. But how do we, as most of us are city dwellers, you know, how do we access that? Are there local sources of this kind of meat? There are. Um, it's tough. Um, so when I first started looking, because I got so sick from, from Roundup and all that sort of thing. Um, it took the better part of a year for me to find um, good sources. Um, and not everybody's definition of regenerative is the same. And it's really important that we don't allow greenwashing on that. It's not okay. And I've heard people stand up and say organic and regenerative and permaculture and all the rest, it all means the same thing. No, it doesn't. Um, there isn't one system in place for uh, determining if you're regenerative, um, but regenerative actually means that you're storing carbon. There are some programs. There's the, um, I think it's EVOL, E-V-O-L maybe, um, that Savory Institute is a part of where they are matching corporate partners with farmers so that the farmer knows that they won't lose money on crops, that everything that they're raising uh, will go to a company. So Epic Jerky um, is regeneratively raised. Um, there's, there is some greenwashing in there because there are some big companies that it's a little questionable how they're determining. Audubon is a much easier certification to get, but they're not actually measuring carbon in the soil. Um, and carbon in the soil is really your best measure of, of whether or not you're regenerative. Stan? Well, Kansas City has a huge network of uh, farmers markets, and most of the farmers there are doing something better than a step above what you would find in the grocery stores. And uh, they're at least being raised locally and it's fresher. Um, most of the time I'm finding when I talk to the farmers that they're using significantly better uh, materials, compost for the fertilizer, that kind of thing that uh, make the food healthier. And uh, that's, you know, use the economy, spend your dollars, vote for good food. And, uh, you know, we haven't bought a piece of meat at a grocery store in a decade and it's it's possible to do that uh and i recommend it there's as hillary was saying the nutritional value uh the difference in the cholesterol makeup or the the fatty acid makeup in the meat meats are amazing and uh the taste is terrific so uh um you know we have a lot of resources as far as finding farmers markets and using and using them and that's you know, if we if we build it, they will come. If we buy it, they will grow more. So uh, uh, I would suggest heading that way. Of all, all the things we can do to help climate change and, and these other issues, health, it seems like food is the simplest one we can do. I mean, we just, as you said, we vote 
with our with our pocketbook you know it's what we buy at the grocery store it's what we buy at the restaurant and you know if we choose to buy what's often cheaper sustainable solutions we can all have a big impact mark you're with cultivate kc um i mean what 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 are your sources for this kind of materials what kind of foods are you producing um, there's definitely some meat producers in the, or in and around the city, which cultivate. We mostly work with the urban farmers. Um, obviously, the land um, availability in the urban setting is much more attuned to fruits and vegetables rather than livestock. But there's definitely, you know, it, the cities offer um, good opportunity for chickens, um, as, as you can see, as a lower output. Um, there, there is a some local hog and some local beef as we get into the peri-urban areas. Um, but mostly fruit and vegetables in the city, I would say setting. Now, but it doesn't mean the city doesn't offer, as I think mentioned before, the, the consumer base that can really drive agricultural decisions. And it doesn't, I think, it, it's not necessarily trying to say beef out entirely. I don't know that that's a reasonable um, answer for the American public currently, but how the beef is grown is certainly a reasonable going to, as mentioned, regenerative practices, rotational grazing, um, having much different impact than, than the CAFO would. At least one of your growers has brought in both cattle and sheep to graze uh, on the Westport farm, which was a lot of fun. Um, cows on Gillum. It's great. It's not constant things, but it it was great. David, I think David had. Well, I just uh, want to throw out that um, coming soon is some uh, standardization for uh, regenerative agriculture with the regenerative organic certification. And uh, it's out of pilot, so Uh, theoretically before too long you'll be able to have not just a a certification label for something that is totally regenerative but also labels for uh, farms that are on their way to transitioning from traditional chemical farming to regenerative organic and be able to help those farmers who are on the way to their three-year certification, which I think is really important because they need to have a market for their food that is grown on land that uh, has been in trouble, but they're using the correct practices to get it back to where it should be. I'm seeing that. Um, I mean, we're, we're talking a lot about meats and, and beef particularly, you know, American is, is the higher cons- highest consumer of beef in the world. I mean, we really have a beef heavy diet. And it seems like most of what I'm reading indicates it's healthier to have less meat, beef, you know, eat other meats, and in general, reduce meats. Again, that healthy diet where we eat more fruits and vegetables, you know, Americans are just really bad at that. At the same time, and I, I I know we have to recognize that the ruminant animals, the cows, the, um, the sheep and such, they're important to the, the health of the land because it's part of that grazing of those animals that creates fertile soil, great grass. You know, if we're talking silvopasture where we're, you know, we're grazing animals within forest areas, they're part of the ecosystem. So we absolutely need them, absolutely need them. 
but we don't necessarily be, need to be deforesting the Amazon to mass raise cattle and you know then ship them to a payphone, feed them on grain. I mean, it, it's that process that's more or less destroying our environment, destroying the planet. Um, Stan? Um, to that point, uh, Alan Savory and the Savory Institute, who's kind of the father of regenerative grazing, um, talks about brittle land, land that's dry-ish, dr land that's on the edge, can't really do very good vegetable production there, but it's a huge amount of land on, on, on the world at the margins of our humid areas, uh, like the Great Plains, for example. And uh, the best way to handle that is to have a moving microbial uh, colony called the gut of an animal, gather that r dry, rough stuff, process it microbially and poop it out as a nutrient rich source while building, you know, some producible, you know, some usable uh, meat tissue. So it, putting that back in place, uh, you know, the, the old 80s topic was the Buffalo Commons. And we, Savory mentioned that when when the herds left the land, the land degraded. And we're in that process of degrading so much land between uh, the fallowing that they have to do out there bef between growing grain crops. They take every other year off because there's not enough moisture to grow the corn as far out as they are. Well, the grass would grow fine. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it would diversify into a, a soil building plant biome as well as a, and then become a habitat where the grazers could do some good. And it's, a, it's really the best way to manage land. Hillary. There's a really interesting, um, actually, I don't know if it's a study yet. I don't know if it's been written up, but an event um, in the Tubbs fire in California, um, hugely destructive fire, people died, build homes destroyed, forests burned down. Uh, there is a ranch called Pepperwood Reserve. Um, and all they've done is put cattle on it and then manage them according to the, the Allen Savory holistic uh, management system. In the Tubbs fire, uh, the firefighters got there and they have, so they have a mixture um, on that estate of silva pasture and open pasture. Um, when the fire was coming over the crest of the hill, the cattle all moved under the trees because that's what their instinct tells them to do. That fire burned very, very differently. Burned differently than our prairie fires generally do at this point um, because the soil was holding so much water and the trees weren't dry because they were able to get water from the soil. And so the fire flashed through the grass and was gone. No people were hurt, no buildings destroyed. Um, they didn't even lose fence posts um, because the soil was in good shape just from the way they were moving cattle. Um, so it's, it's a very different kind of burn um, than even the prairie burns we do now because of the way we manage them. 
for some of our listeners, some of these terms we're throwing around. I know silvopasture is where we're we're grazing animals within a forested area. So it's kind of, instead of deforesting just you know grasslands, you have trees and such. That's what Hillary's talking about. We've also mentioned managed grazing, which is where you know you you graze your your animals on a small plot of land and then move them to a different plot of land. So they're like rotated around instead of eating that one section of land down to the roots. You know, you let them crop the top, you let them fertilize it, and then you move them to the next section of land. And, you know, regenerative agriculture is kind of the way my grandparents farmed. You know, you're rotating crops, you're probably not plowing. I mean, you're plowing, but you're not stripping the land. So no pesticides, no herbicides. You leave a ground cover on the land and just plant your seeds among that. So I think those old techniques are the new techniques we're talking about. And, you know, we just need to go back the way things were before we became a corporate farming system. We've, we've talked a lot about um, these, these techniques that seem to be appropriate for the small farmer. But I, I know my, my family generations, I mean, I come from North Missouri, Iowa, and all my family were farmers, a small family farm. And at this point, you know, we've all lost our farms. You know, all of my relatives have had their land bought up by the big corporates. And for them, it's factory farming. You know, clear the land, push as much whatever through that as you can, use chemicals, use steroids, use antibiotics to get it grow fast, then throw it into a CAFO and, you know, gain the weight, send it to market. How do we move back to the small farming? Just economically, are there programs or ideas that could help us incentivize the small farmer to recapture their land and start doing these small farmer managed regenerative techniques? Sure, Savory, again, as one of their um, programs will actually match small ranchers with companies that promise to buy everything that they raise regeneratively on their land. Um, the really big problem for small farmers, if you have less than 5,000 acres, you have to have a day job. And so you can't really be there to watch how far down on the grass the cattle have chewed before you move them into the next pasture. Um, becomes much more difficult. So we need a way, it may be carbon, uh, that if they can show that they're uh, sequestering carbon in their soils, that- Carbon credits. Right, carbon credits. Uh, carbon credits are often traded with a company that doesn't have a way of um, lessening their carbon footprint. So there are a lot of different programs that can be in there. You know, USDA right now pays for conservation strips that do next to nothing because they're generally turf grass. They get sprayed by everything that the farm is getting sprayed by. The, I can tell you in engineer's terms that the, the coefficient for turf grass is slightly above concrete. Um, so there, there are things that we can change pretty easily. Um, and I would think we'd want to start with a healthy soils um, movement in every state. David? I've done quite a bit of uh, looking around for uh, places that are uh, helping support people uh, with small farms uh, go regenerative and farmers footprint 
Mm -hmm. uh, it's relatively new and one of the best places that I've found because it pulls in all this diverse information in one mm -hmm. place, including the, the financial. And I think that that's, um, you know, one of the challenges for uh, getting farmers to transition or getting young people to be successful in starting uh, buying up land and starting a small farm is there so many different things. There are people that are experts on the greenhouse end of it or ponds and key line plowing and someone else is an expert on cover crops. And uh, I love the way Farmer's Footprint pulls all of that mm -hmm. uh, into one place so that it's accessible. You're listening to The Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove. We're speaking with Mark Aron, David Haken, Meredith McAllister, Hillary Noonan, and Stan Slaughter about sustainable food. Mark, I'd like to give you a chance to talk about Cultivate KC. I mean, that's your area of expertise, the fruit, the veggies. You know, what's happening and how do we as consumers tap into that? So for us, it's, um, and I think a lot of farmers, it's more, we accept, it's not that we accept it, but we know the climate is going to keep warming, regardless, it's going to take worldwide efforts to halt that approach. So a lot of our focus tends to be on how to create more resilient farms that can survive in the coming future um, until things are turned around. Not that we're not participants in, you know, actively trying to mitigate climate change, but so we, we work in manners of, you know, how can the farm stay in business in the meantime, um, which that can mean, and that can be a different thing for every farm. That could be somebody um, putting in a key line system to to mitigate the water on the crop and keep more water on the land so they gain irrigation and gain deep, less compaction on the soil. Um, that could mean the farmer is going to be looking at adding shade structures so they can actually get their crops started in the summertime that they need to grow in the fall. Um, it could take on a wide range of uh, resilient strategies, but so that's something we do concentrate on um, for, for vegetable farmers, because what we see is, and I think this may be this across the board, but at least for our area, what we see is massive downpours of rain. You know, instead of getting gentle rains, you might get six inches of rain this weekend and, and then have two months of drought. So, you know, it's how to deal with that changing um, type of weather pattern strategies. We don't necessarily want to move all the water off the property. That, that could be your first inclination because um, you don't want your crops to flood. But if we're not going to have water soon after, we need to try to work at keeping some more of that water on the land. Uh, we also see pests show up earlier in the year. Different like This past year is the earliest um, majority of farmers in the area would have seen aphids show up. And we're very large populations early in the season causing problems in Nebraska crops. Um, so we see, and then we see the potential for pests to have additional life cycles with higher heat units. Um, we have additional life cycles that are potential in some pests like aphids or like the spider wing drosophila, which affects our fruit growers and such. Um, on and on. <laughs> I've seen a lot of yards that are being converted to crops. People that either have raised beds or, you know, they've just eliminated the sod. They're growing corn, peppers, tomatoes in the front yard. Stan, did you want to comment on that? We do see a lot of that and uh, more and more all the time. 
the zoning laws have been made very helpful in Kansas City for gardening and, and chickens and that kind of thing. I believe we've got all kinds of potential for the Missouri River bottoms. The, the Call River between Kansas City and Lawrence was once the largest uh, food production unit in the entire Midwest. All those fertile river valleys that we have up and down the Missouri from, from Kansas City could be greenhouse. The story of greenhouses in Spain and Portugal and how they're working to uh, have year-round food in that temperate area and mitigate their droughts with greenhouses is just, it's exploding there. And we could do that if we were serious about it. The one last thing I wanna say a little bit more about is the, the waste side of the food system. And uh, <clears throat> that, that uh, composting and food waste is the by far the most accessible piece of the drawdown puzzle that I can see for, for most people, because not only are you involved in the choices, but you're involved in the way you handle the food waste itself. Let's talk about composting, because that ties into the home garden and food waste and all that. So Meredith, tell us a little bit about your company and what you're doing. Yeah, so Compost Collective KC is a residential food waste collection company. So um, we just try to make composting really easy and clean for people. Um, I think that there's a, a bad rap with uh, somebody's backyard composting that it's maybe dirty or too hard. And um, our goal is to just make it easy. We give people a bucket and they fill it with scraps and we collect it and it ends up at Missouri Organic. So you're um, doing curbside pickup? Curbside. And we have a few locations around town that are more like centralized spots that you can take your bucket to. Um, and I will say we've, we've turned a lot of people on to backyard composting. I think one huge pro when you compost in general at home is that you're realizing how much food waste you have. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people didn't know. A lot of people have no clue. They realized that I had four bags of trash every week and now I have one bag every other week. <laughs> and, um, and when you have that volume of food waste, you want to get it down. <laughs> and we really encourage people to do that, to see how you can stop wasting so much food. David? When I talk to people about uh, food waste, what seems to really get their attention and get the penny to drop and get them doing things differently is the fact that the, the food waste that they're putting in the landfill uh, is anaerobic and it produces methane, which is 25 times or more uh, potent as a greenhouse gas and CO2. And that really gets people to think, well, here's an easy way for me to make a difference and be part of the solution. Uh, and so uh, that's, uh, that's one thing I try to mention to people because I didn't know that before you know, diving into the information and drawdown. And um, our group has had some success with getting people to do uh, worm composting which from what I've heard is the gold standard of compost. If you can get the worm casings and, and compost from uh, you know, a worm bin, that that's gonna be better for your plants than just about anything. And um, that's been really exciting because we've got over a hundred kitchens where people are worm composting right in their kitchen and finding it really easy. 
I've actually done some um, babysitting for people's worm buckets. <laughs> go out of town. They're going, oh, you've got to take care of my worms while I'm gone. So it's kind of like having a pet. Yeah. Pets. And you, you adopt a, a worm colony, and it is, you know, the only problem is you have a lot of compost you have to give away or use. <laughs> or start those home gardens. Yeah, or split into another bin and give it to a friend. A lot of a lot of people are doing that. That have these. We're ones. thinking Christmas presents. <laughs> well, it's you know once it's an ongoing worm bin, it smells just like a forest. It's very easy. Right. You just put the food in, cover it up, uh, aerate it, stir it around once a week. Uh, people get to where they love their worms. You don't have to name them. <laughs> They're great pets. You could leave for two weeks. So it sounds like, I mean, in terms of, of changing our diets, you know, improving our health, saving money, saving the planet, I mean, moving to, um, you know, the more fruits and vegetables. I mean, if we're, if you're so inclined to have that hobby and start your, start gardening in your home, you know, in your yard, whatever. And I think it's wonderful that even urban in the cities here, we can do these little patches and raised beds in our yard. If you're doing that yourself, you're getting better quality food, you're getting healthier food, and we're eliminating that entire transportation element of, you know, shipping fruits and vegetables from South America, which, you know, that's a large carbon footprint. Plus that stuff's probably irradiated, frozen, who knows what by the time it gets to you. So how nutritious is that? And I share with, sorry, I share with my neighbors. You're talking about what you're growing in your yard and then sharing it with the neighbors? Absolutely. I think if you're if you're interested in doing a home garden, then composting is important because you need that soil. I mean, that's just part of the cycle. Right. I think for those that aren't ready to move there yet, you know, people like Meredith, you know, um, Compost Collective, it's a it's a way of going ahead and getting your food scraps into the system without actually having to do it yourself. Absolutely. And I think that's a wonderful idea. I mean, when you mentioned just composting, if nothing else, it shows you how much food you're throwing away. Right. And that's money out of your pocket. It's not only bad for the environment and landfills, but it's money out of your pocket. It's a so, tremendous uh, example to our children. I've toured Kansas for 17 years. And even in Kansas, all over the rural country, you didn't see people who knew the loop. Young ki- ch- children who didn't know where food came from. Didn't, you know, and when you take food, make compost or worm castings, put it on the soil, grow a vegetable, you've been involved, you're you're definitely interested. It's uh, probably one of the best motivational tools and the first time and maybe the only local place they can get an example of this cycle of life. I want to go ahead and move into food waste. Um, you know, as, as important as plant-based food is, and, and David, I think in terms of the, the drawdown hierarchy, plant-based food is like the fourth or fifth highest solution. Food waste is even higher than that. If we reduce food waste, it has an even greater impact. You want to start with that, Stan? I'm just saying it's number three. And last time I checked on the on the hierarchy is reducing food waste. And uh, I work for Missouri Organic Recycling, and uh, we're we're now composting 400 tons a week, and it's pretty massive. And uh, um, our one site is nearing its capacity, and uh, took a lot of money to get it to that capacity and we're working it as fast as we can, but it's, it's fascinating. We grind it, depackage it, take the cardboard and the plastic out of it, send that to a cement kiln to be burned as a refuse derived fuel. So there's no landfill waste in the whole process and corporations are loving that. 
because they get a higher corporate score for their not sending anything to landfill. And so we're getting uh, the Kroger chain, Dillon's, a lot of corporate people coming on board. And, uh, uh, you know, it's a problem we love to have. Is, but what comes out of that machine is liquid food slurry. And uh, we pump it in liquid with adding leaves and stir it. And it's the only system in the country that takes a liquid nitrogen source, mixes it with ground up leaves. And it's, it's the best recipe for compost I've ever seen. I think that's great. We've got those solutions and thank you, Stan, and, and all of you. I also think we as individuals need to look at how we can reduce the food waste. I mean, you're processing it once it's out there, but ultimately we need to quit producing it. And, you know, what are solutions for that? How do we look at ways? I mean, um, refed.org is, is a site I go to and they're, they're kind of like the drawdown for food waste they're kind of prioritizing different solutions to reduce food waste. So we don't right. have to keep it out of the landfill. We just quit making food waste. Right. And some of these solutions are, are, they seem like very simple things. Eat with smaller plates. So you don't get a big plate full of food, you're hungry, and then you throw it in the trash. So eat on smaller plates and go back for seconds if you need it. Um, I saw one of the recommendations was for um, restaurants, cafeterias to eliminate the tray. So people would get a couple plates and have to carry them. I mean, logically simple things that they say are going to have a huge impact. Mm -hmm. How do you folks feel about that? Have you had any experience with any of these, David? Uh, one of the things that's becoming mainstream is the ugly, ugly fruit. And I think it's Misfits that uh, is doing a, a really good job of getting all that produce that doesn't look right, but it's perfectly good and uh, would not end up on the shelves. And people are, I think, uh, becoming better informed about, hey, this is really important to do for the planet. Get, make sure that food is used and not worry about it being oddly shaped. Yeah, I hear that referred to as imperfect produce. And I think what happens is the supermarkets that get the produce in, they just immediately throw away half of it because it doesn't look perfect. And it's perfectly, I mean, there's that word again, it's perfectly edible, nutritious food that's just going directly to the landfill or, or to a processing system. So, yeah. uh, EPA has had several really good suggestions um, and Food Too Good to Waste is a website we've grabbed onto and built a poster around and educational program, but there's also an EPA site, Food Too Good to Waste. And uh, they talk about smart use, smart preparation and smart storage. Smart use means, um, First of all, make a list, um, shop to a list. And it says shop in your fridge first, shop in your pantry first. Only get what you don't have. <laughs> uh, don't double up. Uh, bring it home and prepare it. Pre wash it, chop it, put it in that little Pyrex bowl with the lid on it. So you've got next two meals worth of carrots ready to go. You'll save time and you'll have dealt with it and you'll know where it is. And then uh, label a shelf, eat me first. Put the, the short term <laughs> food on yeah. this shelf, right? Roll, roll it up and keep it going. Uh, so smart storage, you know, refrigerate the right foods, don't refer you know, all of that is a very simple but very effective ways to do things. David? 
Next fall, I'm going to launch a big project for canning, teaching people how to can the uh, extra produce and put it up. And I did that when uh, my kids were little. Uh, and uh, it the best way is with a pressure cooker. And it's like, oh my gosh, Instapot, yes. <laughs> <laughs> people have pressure cookers now. Let's go. Because that, I mean, that was just, that and a root cellar. You know, what happened to the root cellars? I mean, that's, we're, again, we're going back to what made sense um, and realizing the scientific urgency of, of best practices now. Root cellars and canning, David, you're obviously older than I am. <laughs> <laughs> but you had that in Iowa. Yeah, there's no question my grandparents did that. I remember as a little kid playing in the root cellar, so I know what you're talking about. What about um, restaurants? I mean, are there solutions to help us reduce food waste in restaurants? I've seen some people recommend that rather than buying the big entree, you go in and you buy appetizer plates. You know, you can, and a lot of times those are, you know, happy hour, whatever on sale. You can pick up two or three appetizer plates for less than you would spend on a normal meal. And you're, you know, you're generating a lot less food waste. Has anybody had any experience with that? We my wife and I split entrees always. The a typical entree, I mean, at my advanced age, a typical entree is twice as big as that I need. And, uh, you know, either buy a la carte. You know, you can go off and pull off two or three small items on the side and a house salad and you're set, you know, for half price or less. And uh, uh, that's the way we're handling it greatly, like you suggest. And so bring your own to-go containers. If you if you find that you your meals can be much bigger than you expected, I know. I don't think my husband would ever split an entree with me. Um, but <laughs> uh, I, so I'm bringing that food home with me. So bring your own to-go containers with you and put it in there. Um, obviously, we're in a different world right now with COVID. But um, so if you're ordering extra food, save it. <laughs> it's going to be good tomorrow in two days and three days. Don't don't have the restaurant throw it out just because there's extra on your plate. Absolutely. And bring your own food containers. I mean, a lot of times we're talking styrofoams and plastics. If you use the, the restaurants carry home, although I have found in a lot of restaurants, I've seen people ask, would you wrap that up in aluminum foil or something, you know, as an alternative to taking their, their traditional. So if you don't have something with you, you can always ask them to do something that's you know biodegradable. Right. Um, restaurants, home cooking. Um, what about expiration dates and labeling? I've seen some movements that are, you know, and this is kind of a government driven thing where they feel like we could improve the labeling on products. Uh, a lot of people are saying that the expiration dates on products are being driven by the marketing groups that want to sell a lot of products. So, you know, the sooner they get you to throw it out, the sooner they can sell you a fresh one. So I've, I've heard about some, some initiatives that are wanting to get more accurate and standardized, you know, so that we, we have consistent expiration dates. And then instead of just leaving it up to the packagers to put whatever they want on those. Is anybody familiar with those programs? Stan? Uh, I've, 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 the thing I say to people is that you have a highly sensitive portable chemical detector mounted directly on the front of your face. And, uh, it, you know, that's your best test. And uh, unless there's a, you know, if it's in, infected with a 
a mold or whatever, you'll be able to smell that. And sometimes you can cut the mold off the cheese. You can actually use a lot of the dairy products that aren't taken over by the mold just as, you know, just as well. It's already molded. Cheese is made out of mold, yeah. <laughs> exactly, you know, that we have this uh, paranoia about that. But uh, yeah, usually, the date, I've, I don't think I've ever looked at a board on date. Now I can't read it, but the point is it, it doesn't, you know, just. The, those dates aren't scientific gospel. Those are more marketing. And you know, like you say, use your nose, use your nose and eyes. And if the food looks good and it smells good and still tastes good, there's really no reason not to go ahead and eat it. Right. David, you were talking about canning and stuff. It seems like that's a perfect opportunity for the this imperfect produce. I mean, if we're going to can... You know, or otherwise preserve it long term. It doesn't matter what it looks like. Do we have markets, secondary markets in Kansas City now that are specializing in this imperfect produce? Well, we have after the harvest, which collects yeah. the stuff out of the field. Um, we also have canbies. Mm-hmm. Um, Maxfield Canada is doing a terrific job collecting food that's on the way out of the wholesale gro- groceries. Uh, this summer, he was make, having chefs make gourmet meals and giving them away to people that needed them. Uh, he's got a whole system and a great warehouse where he's handling this material. So uh, that's another one that, and it's canbesmarket.com, I believe, K-A-N-B-E-S. Another technique I've heard people talk about in terms of your grocery shopping is to buy loose product instead of the packages. Seems like... Um, so much produce is packaged in such large bulks that we're not going to be able to eat it all. And half of it ends up rotting before we can consume it. So if you're, you know, you're going to a market that has the loose, loose produce, you can just pick as much as you think you'll eat and not have to buy those big bags. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, as gardeners know, when it's, August and the zucchini starts really growing three inches a night that most vegetables come in at a certain time and you have just a, a, a lot of them. I mean, it's possible. I know uh, I remember getting uh, fresh uh, sweet corn in Utah from uh, a farm that planted one row every day in the spring. And so they would take that one row, harvest it, and sell it on the side of the road. And they never had any extra. (laughs) It was just ready. But uh, most places, uh, you've just got so much food coming ready for harvest that um, it really takes uh, planning to make sure that you don't have food waste in those circumstances. So let me see if I can summarize. I mean, we've talked about a lot today. Um, Obviously, we as individuals, and that's kind of our focus here, how can we as individuals make sustainable food choices? And most of us aren't farmers, so we have to take what's at the market. But it it seems like, you know, a healthier diet has less meat. It's going to have more of those fruits and veggies you need. So, you know, more nutrition. Ideally, shopping locally, finding local produce. Um, so eating seasonally. I mean, locally, we're not going to be growing the same thing every day. But, you know, if you change your diet with the seasons, 
And, you know, if you do can, or if you know somebody that cans and preserves, I mean, that's the way to carry things forward. And then in terms of food waste, there's a lot of techniques there, you know, buying smaller quantities, go to the store more often, buy smaller quantities so that the food doesn't rot. Um, if you're going out to eat, you know, order a la carte, order small plates, appetizers, um, you know, going into the, the restaurants, try eating without that tray, you know, just take a couple plates back to your table and then go back or exercise going back and forth to the food bar instead of, you know, bringing the whole food bar to your table. So reducing those food waste and composting wonderful because it shows you how much waste you're creating and that's money out of your pocket. That's nutrition that you need. So, you know, compost or work with a group like, you know, Meredith's company to let them compost for you if you don't want to do that. Home gardening, even better. If you want to take that hobby, if you like to be in the yard, raise flowers, you know, why not raise some of your own fruits and vegetables? It's a great way to turn that compost back into usable product. And I thought Stan's idea was great. You know, if you have children, it's a great way to teach them about that cycle of life. So these have all been great solutions and great ideas that we can all um, we can all take advantage of. So I want to thank our guests for joining us tonight. You can find a lot of this information on the Climate Council's website, and that's www.climategkc.org. Uh, Stan, where can people learn more about Missouri Organic? Uh, MissouriOrganic.com and FoodTooGoodToWaste.com. Great. Meredith, what about Compost Collective KC? Uh, so CompostCollectiveKC.com has all of our information um, that's where you're able to sign up. And then also our social media. So we use um, Instagram and Facebook. Thank you. Mark, where can we learn more about Cultivate KC? CultivateKC.org. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as well. Great. David, Kansas City Drawdown Society. Yes, the uh, site is kcdrawdown.org. And there you can get a link to our other site, carbonfootprinteating.org. Hillary, where can we learn about Mad Hatter Compost Tea? Uh, at madhattercomposttea.com. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. We welcome your questions and feedback. You can learn more about us at climatehour.net. This is the Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove.